Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. All right, well, we are back in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and I titled this one, Wives and Husbands. So we're going to get to the cliffhanger I left us off on last week. We're going to get to it today. Uh, We're going to talk about wives and husbands. Um, In our series on Ephesians, we've been working our way through this letter to the Ephesians slowly, uh, taking the time to read this book with a fresh perspective. And what we've been doing the last couple weeks is we've been building on this concept that starts sort of halfway through chapter 4 of of, uh, Ephesians, um, how we no longer live like we did before we knew Christ. And we've been using a term to define what that looks like, and that term is kingdom living. And kingdom living, as we've seen, includes how we use our tongues, uh, how, we, how we speak, what, the, what things that we say. Uh, it includes avoiding uh, sexual immorality. It includes avoiding covetousness. Uh, it includes how we worship. And last week we saw that kingdom living calls for mutual submission. And that's the key concept that we're going to keep developing into this week. But before we tackle our question for today, we're going to bring back our four themes that we've been talking about in every single sermon during this series. Uh, The first one is that uh, the letter to the Ephesians is community-oriented. It's not written to our modern Western individualistic culture. So we've been reading every you as y'all. The second thing that we've been seeing is that new creation and new order of things that's available in Jesus, that apocalypse, that revelation, that encounter with Jesus that transforms our lives, that changes the way that we see the world. It changes the way that we live in the world. Um, That's the second main theme we've been seeing. And then the third and the fourth, which go hand in hand, is that unity comes in Christ, that God's plan is for this amazing unity for to unite everything to himself through Christ. Um, And that that means unity between heaven and earth. It means unity between humanity, Jew and Gentile. Um, And then when we do see division, uh, we do see this battle that happens. It's with the powers, what we've been calling the, the evil powers of the world. So our question for today is, what does godly marriage look like? What does godly marriage look like? And we're not going to do a fully orbed, you know, theology of marriage today. We, you know, you could do a whole series on that. Uh, But we're just going to look at some some basic uh, comments that we can make from this particular passage. Now, usually what what I do when we start uh, these types of sermons, we've been starting with reading the passage in question. uh, But we aren't going to do that today. We're going to break We're going to break that trend. Uh, We're going to get to the passage shortly. But before we do get to the passage, I want us to get into a time machine. The time machine. (laughs) We're going to go back to uh, not 1985, though, although that was a good year. That was the year I was born. We're not going to go back to 1985. We're going to go back to 62 AD. 62 AD was when Paul was in prison uh, writing this letter to the Ephesians. So we have to ask ourselves when we, when we hop into this time machine, what does their culture look like? Why is Paul mentioning wives and husbands, uh, children and fathers, and slaves and masters here in a row in the letter to the Ephesians? So to answer that last question here, this, this section of Ephesians builds on something that was really well known in the ancient Greco-Roman culture, something called the household code. So the household code was a standard of ethics that was addressed to the heads of households. Um, The head of a household was usually someone who was a husband. They were a father. 
and they were a slave owner. This would have been a wealthy person, usually a Roman citizen with some status. Now, almost every household code that we have now that persists to this day, all that they do is they address the head of the household. That's the only person that they address. They never address uh, the wives. They don't address the children. They don't address the slaves. Um, it was assumed in that time and in that culture that the head of the household had higher status than everyone else and that the whole household's literal meaning and existence was found in and through the head of household. So there, everyone sort of arranged their lives, you could say, around the head of household. Um, I want to give you a couple of examples of household codes and comments about household codes from the ancient world. This first quote is from Aristotle. Uh, seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of the household management correspond to the persons who compose the household, and a complete household consists of slaves and freemen. Now we should begin by examining everything in its fewest possible elements, and the first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. That's Aristotle, Politics 1.3. So here we have the same three delineations that we find here in Ephesians 5 and 6. Master and slave, husband, wife, father, and children. Uh, Aristotle later in the same work says this about household management. He says, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is a rule of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already. Another of a father and the third of a husband. A husband and father, we saw rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being royal and the ruler over his wife is based on natural constitution. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the elder and full grown is superior to the younger and more immature. So uh, I don't know about the ladies in the room. I don't know if their heartbeats are starting to get a little faster and the tension starting to rise a little bit, but this is, uh, this is what Aristotle believed. And as I asked last week, are we going to sit here and cancel Aristotle? Are we going to, you know, this is what Aristotle thought. And uh, he lived a long time ago. This is just what was in their culture at the time. Now, just so that we don't think that this was just an ancient Greco-Roman thing, because Aristotle lived, uh, you know, 2,500 years ago in Greece, what we now call Greece. I want to give a quote from Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian uh, who was around the Greco-Roman culture quite a bit, but he was writing during the time of the first century church. And so Josephus said this about uh, women and men. He said, quote, The woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be obedient, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for God has given authority to the man. So all I'm pointing out here, now you, it might be interesting to read some of these things because uh, we've heard echoes. I think we hear echoes of these ideas even in our modern culture, uh, or especially in our modern culture maybe 50 years ago or something like that. Uh, we hear echoes of these same kinds of arguments, these same kind of ideas. So the question that we're asking ourselves today is, did Paul agree with these things, or did he agree with some of them, or did he disagree with them? Or like, where does Paul find himself in this ancient world that saw heads of household as essentially uh, more important than everyone else in that culture, in that society. Did Paul agree with that or did he disagree with that? So we're going to get to that here in a little bit. But I do want to gather a couple things that we can say about uh, household codes and about their worldview back then. 
Uh, the first thing was the household code was viewed as important because the household was the microcosm of the empire. So if you're thinking about an emperor, what they care about is stability. They care about the stability of the empire. And so stability on the empire, they believed, uh, depended on stability of the household. So the heads of household were viewed as like really important members of the state uh, to keep everything in order. Uh, the second thing that we can notice is that women, children, and slaves were viewed as lower than the head of household by virtue of social status, gender, and age. So they were lesser, the head of household was greater. There was a difference there in status and in honor and in recognition. So because of those two things, the head of household was the only one that was ever addressed directly in these household codes because it was up to him to keep the society in order by doing his job well. So that, that's sort of the whole thing about uh, this, this concept is that if the head of household is the highest ranking person in the household and if he is in some sense an employee of the state helping the emperor uh, keep everything in order throughout the empire, then he's the employee that you got to talk to and say, hey, make sure you're doing your job and keeping your household in order. So now, now that we sort of built a little bit, now this is just a small bit, but now we built a little bit of this, let's read our passage now. Ephesians 5, we'll start in verse 21, picking it up from this verb that gets um, implied in verse 22. So verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The first thing that Paul does in verse 22 is he talks to wives. Is there any household code in the history of this culture in this time that addressed women at all? Huh. No. And he addresses them first. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. Now, if we kept reading into chapter 6, we'd see Paul addressing children before he addresses fathers, and he addresses slaves before he addresses owners. So I think that there are a lot of things that we can just say by just reading through the passage. We can already conclude at this point. First, instead of addressing only the wealthy, free, higher status people in the congregation, the heads of household, Paul addresses wives, children, and slaves directly, and he makes a point of addressing them first. He's doing this for a reason. He's being subversive here. The second thing is, Paul does command children and slaves to obey in the Lord, but he does not command wives to submit. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, he uses a lot of uh, imperative or command verbs to get nerdy with you for a second, and he suspiciously avoids using it with the wives. 
he all these words for submitting, yes, we've talked about submitting a lot last week, but none of these are commands for wives to submit to their husbands. They're just um, they're normal verbs that you would be like a recommendation to do something like. The next thing that Paul does that's subversive is he gives head of household a higher calling with what he commands them. Uh, he commands them to do uh, to love their wives. Uh, that is something that is uh, a higher calling as we're going to unpack today than what submission would mean for the wives. So he puts more responsibility on the head of household, just like the culture would, but he does it through servant leadership. It's a different way of looking at leadership in the household. The other thing that I want to point out is Paul has in mind the gospel message, which sets us all on an equal plane. The, the first verse of this passage is verse 21, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. We're all submitting to Christ, and so therefore we all submit to one another. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that too here in a minute. Now, Paul does want to keep order in society, and we're, we're going to talk a little about that at the end. I think that's part of the reason why he encourages wives to submit to their husbands is because he wants the gospel to be compelling and not to be unattractive. And in that culture, the most unattractive thing was anarchy, was disorder. And so how does he give them an ordered arrangement, a way of doing things uh, that is minded on the gospel, that is gospel-focused and gospel-minded, but still keeps order? I think that's what he's trying to do here in Ephesians 5 and 6. So the other thing that I'm saying is Paul is using familiar language of that time and place in unfamiliar ways. Uh, we've talked about submission, how submission would have been used as a hammer uh, to force people to comply with those who are higher status than them in that culture and at that time. Paul's not using submission that way. And he's, he's using it in very unique ways. I also want to point out that not everyone in the church would have fit into these categories. We, um, a lot of people, when they come to this passage, they like to think that the whole church would have fit into some of these categories. But um, many people in the church would have not fit into these little categories of, of wives and husbands. Some people would have been widowed or would have been divorced or would have been single. Uh, some people would have been married but without children. Some people would have been free without owning slaves. Um, or they would, might have been a freed slave. Um, so not everyone in the church would have fit into the categories of this household code that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5 and 6. So with that in mind, I want to review what we talked about submission last week. Uh, the first thing is that submission is voluntary. It isn't wrestling. And again, I want to point out that this is not a picture. This is not what husbands and wives are to look like. It's not the husband in purple pinning down his wife in green and saying, you must submit. Uh, the wife has the prerogative in this passage to listen to what Paul is saying and to voluntarily submit, but she's only to submit in certain circumstances like we talked about last week and we're going to continue talking about uh, this week. So remember, submission in this context means to voluntarily set aside your honor and status in order to serve someone else. So think about this in the original context where you have slaves and you have free people. You have uh, women and you have men, you have kids and you have adults, all in the same community of faith, all with the same status in Christ. So who's Paul talking to mostly through this passage when he's saying in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? Who's the main person that he has in mind that needs to think about giving up their honor and their status and their privilege in order to submit to someone else in the congregation? 
He's talking to the heads of household. He's talking to the men of highest status in that. They, these have been the men who would have balked at this the hardest, this, uh, this verse 21. So again, that leads us to our second thing, that this admission to submit is addressed to the whole community. Leaders are not exempted. Certain genders are not exempted. Certain classes of people are not exempted. Everyone is included. Everyone should submit. And that means that, again, the highest status people should submit. Third, the context here, like we talked about last week, is out of reverence for Christ. It's related grammatically to being filled with the Spirit. So this is not unconditional submission. As Paul continues in the passage, he'll tell children to obey their parents in the Lord. He'll use a similar type of verbiage with slaves. So the whole context here of submission is it's voluntary, it's done in order to serve someone else in love, and it's in out of reverence for Christ. It's Christ-centered. Um, it's only things that would have been um, things that God would want. Fourth, we need to be careful to read this text in its original cultural context. Paul is not speaking to us again in a postmodern feminist environment. He's talking to a group of two churches 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world in Asia Minor. And again, we, we quoted Aristotle and Josephus. I think we can already agree. What we've just talked about already, Paul disagrees wildly with, with Aristotle and Josephus. So they're, they're, it's not even a comparison. The fifth point we made last week was that husbands are actually commanded to love their wives. And that ver verb, unlike the submission verb, is not subordinate to anything else. And it's another clue that Paul's trying to shake things up here. Um, and again, we talked last week about how this is husbands and wives specifically, not men and women generally. And sixth and finally, our greatest example of submitting to one another is our Lord Jesus. He submitted himself uh, most notably through his death on the cross, but he taught servant leadership, especially that moment in the Last Supper when he's washing his disciples' feet. So he taught an upside-down servant way of viewing leadership, and that's the filter that we have to use to understand this passage. So with that, let's go back to the first part of our passage here. Let's reread verses 21 through 25, which we read last week. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we've talked a lot about uh, submission and all the different ways we can filter submission. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this language from verse 23 about what does Paul mean when he's saying that the husband is the head of the wife? Um, you know, many people sort of misconstrue this, I think, when they, they immediately jump from head to think about how we use the word head. And when we use the word head in our modern culture, we often think about brain and like making decisions, which is something that wasn't really well known in the ancient world. Um, the other thing that we think about is we think about things like a head of a company or someone who, again, has authority, has um, a lot of decision-making ability. And, um, you know, that, that view of head is a more modern invention. Um, I mentioned this actually about a month ago. We talked about Jesus being the head of the church in Ephesians chapter 4. And I pointed out then that this word head, this Greek word head, almost never means authority in the original language. If you go back and you look up the word in ancient dictionaries, it does not mean authority. It usually either means your physical head, it means a source, like the head of a river, or it means like the most prominent feature, 
like your head on the on your body your face is like the most prominent thing people look at when you walk into a room they see your their face it's the prominent thing so in Ephesians 4 what we saw was that Christ was the head of the church and what that meant in that context is he's the source of life he supplies uh, life to help the body grow similarly what we're going to see in this passage is that husbands here are called to give life to their wives to support them, to supply their wives with everything they need to be their best in Christ. So just as Christ gave his everything for us so that we could experience new life, husbands are called to do the same thing for their wives. And that's what it means here when it says the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the source of life and is the one who serves his wife in love. Here's a great great quote from a scholar named Timothy Gombas. It's a little long, but I think it's, it's a good one. He said, quote, contemporary household codes were given for the benefit of patriarchs and that they were advised in how to manage or control their households, wives included, for their own benefit and for a stable society. In contrast to this, Paul addresses wives directly, exhorting them to participate fully and willingly in the new humanity. He subverts the contemporary notion that the ordering of the household should be for the benefit of the patriarch or for those in power when he sets in parallel the headship of the husband in relation to his wife and that of Christ in relation to the church. Verse 23. The headship of Christ is characterized by his providing salvation for the church, recalling Christ giving himself to death for the salvation of the church. This is the kind of headship Paul has in mind so that those in subordinate positions in the new humanity do not exist for the comfort of those at the top. Rather, those who have authority or power are to use it for the good protection and nurture of those subordinate to them, end quote. So I think, um, I think it's a great quote of what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying that those who have a lot of power also have a lot of responsibility. And in the, in the context of Christianity, what that means is serving the other one in love, serving the one who has uh, less authority, less status, less honor, that you would serve that person in love. And so that's what Paul is calling uh, the men in this context to do. I want to add here that when it says the wives should submit in everything to their husbands, um, we can't imagine that this everything in verse 24 is literally everything. If the husband asks her to do something that is ungodly, that's unbiblical, then obviously that's exempted from this. Uh, this, is, this is an all or an everything in this case with distinction. And I want to add something here because I think this is really important. Verse 21 says that we're, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And like I've, I've commented on this many times, this does not exempt one gender or another gender, correct? And so if I'm a man who's married in this church group that you know, we, we have that we're building together, right? Now, in, in the context of verse 21, I'm going to submit to Megan in some things. I'm going to submit to Diane and Robin in some things, right? I'm going to submit to Jenny or Anna in some things or Jenna in some things, right? I'm going to submit to other women in the congregation in things related to our church community and things related to events that we have or decisions that we make, or things like that, right? I'm going to submit to them. That's what verse 21 tells me to do, right? I'm a man, you're a woman, I'm going to submit to you in some of these things. So in what universe am I not going to submit to Becca at home? 
I, I just told you, I'm going to submit to all these other women in the church. So why is my wife exempted from this? Why am I not going to ever submit to my wife? We have to realize here that just because Paul uses language to go one way and say, hey, wives should submit to their husbands, he's not saying that husbands shouldn't also submit to their wives. He's already said that in verse 21. He doesn't need to say it again. Just because Paul highlights one aspect of it doesn't mean that the other aspect is not there too. And that's an important thing for us to remember here. He's addressing one side just because he's not addressing the other doesn't mean that we don't also do the other. All right, let's read verses 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now these two, um, two verses are picking up this idea that Paul is, um, he's commanded the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church, for her. And then it describes Christ's ministry using these words, uh, sanctify, cleansing by the washing of water, uh, presenting uh, the church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that these verses are way more scandalous than we've probably ever realized, okay? Because this is describing the conduct of Christ as the husband of the church in relationship to the church and it uses cleaning, washing, and presenting without wrinkles as the main description for what Christ does for the church. Now, we can think about this in our modern society. I think that's fine. I think we already get the point. But I want you to go back in that time machine again, 2,000 years ago almost. Who in the household would have been told in the household codes that they are responsible for washing, for cleaning, for doing the laundry, for ironing? Uh, either a slave or a woman, or the wife. It would have been the sla a slave or a wife, a woman or, or the wife. And so this is describing Christ's actions as the husband of the church by him doing the feminine or slave-like responsibilities. That's how it's describing Christ's ministry to the church. And so the, by implication, what he's telling husbands is, if you love your wives, you're not too big for some of these other things around the house. You can serve your wife in love too. This is what scholar Cynthia Long Westfall said. Quote, Christ's love is illustrated by the sanctification of the church, which is described in terms of domestic chores normally performed by women, giving a bath, providing clothing, doing laundry, including spot removal and ironing. Through analogy and metaphor, Paul has told the husband to follow Christ by serving his wife's needs. She goes on later. The Greco-Roman distinction between males working and providing in the high-status public fear a sphere, rural, forensic, and political, and females working and providing in the low-status domestic sphere are broken down as Paul unmistakably assigns intimate domestic service to both Christ and to the husband, end quote. And again, I think our modern society, if you read some of this stuff and think about like typical male roles in modern society, typical female roles in modern society, it's similar. It's not quite the same, but it's very similar. And Paul here is describing Christ's ministry in terms of the wife or the female slave. It's unbelievable. Now, Westfall elsewhere explains in her book uh, that women acting like men or putting on manly attributes uh, was generally considered a good thing. So, like, you think about women being bucketed in with men by putting on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. 
or getting fit for the athletic games in 1 Corinthians 9 or Philippians 3, or being brave like it talks about in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. All these ways would have been ways for women to put on masculine qualities, and that would have been viewed as a positive thing in this ancient society. Uh, women who were widowed, for example, and had to take over their husband's company and therefore had to like put on some manly qualities of you know, grit and determination and getting out there in public and doing business and doing things like that, uh, they would have in some sense become more manlike in the culture and that would have been viewed as a positive thing in the ancient Greco-Roman world. But the problem with that, in just like putting this directly on the Bible, is that men doing feminine things would have been viewed as underneath them beneath them. So that becomes problematic when Paul describes Christ as doing the, the laundry <laughs> and cleaning. Or like, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul compares himself to a nursing mom. He's a way higher status person comparing himself to a way lower status person. And so we have to understand that Paul's, uh, he's doing some radical things here that we may have overlooked before. Let's keep reading the passage here. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband's. So husbands are repeatedly commanded to love their wives as they love themselves. Uh, there are two striking things here in this uh, couple verses. Uh, first, we find Jesus as the head of the body, uh, nourishing and cherishing the church. Um, it says, uh, no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Um, so we see Jesus as the head of the body. One of his responsibilities is nourishing and cherishing the church. And as Clint Arnold comments in the Zondervan Illustrated Biblical Backgrounds Commentary, uh, these words were ancient marriage expectations. Uh, husbands promised to provide for their wives, uh, feed them, clothe them, take care of them. And Jesus is doing that job today by providing ministers to the church, among other things. And we saw him providing ministers to the church back in chapter 4. Now, the second thing I want to point out here is that Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. Uh, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his uh, wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, Genesis 2.24 is one of the foundational verses in all of Scripture. Uh, it's a touchstone that many different people, different biblical writers come back to over and over again. And this verse provides the foundation for husbands and wives. And, of course, that's an incredibly institution for all of humanity throughout time, uh, for the nation of Israel, for the coming of the Messiah. Um, but what's interesting about this in this context is that Paul sees in Genesis 2.24 a hint at God's plan to unite all things to himself in Christ. Now remember, in chapter 1, verse 10, we talked about how the, the mystery, as Paul defines it in Ephesians, is that God is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth through Christ. That is God's plan to unite everything. And so I wanted to point out that there's two levels that Paul has in his mind here. There is this initial layer of Genesis 2.24 that's on the surface, where the man and the wife become one flesh, where two families, in essence, become one family become uh, united together. But what Paul is saying here, this mystery that he's talking about here, is the same mystery that he's talking about in chapter 1. And so what he's saying here is actually rather shocking. He's saying that Genesis 2.24 
is sort of a hint at what God's future plan was for Jew and Gentile to come together and be together in one body. And he does it using wordplay, wordplay with flesh, going from body to flesh. That's how he does it uh, in the context here. And so what he means by this is that the unity in our marriages, uh, the love and the respect and the submission and the mutuality, uh, the, the mutual respect and the, uh, the idea that we, we serve each other in love, all these things combine to provide a small example of the unity that God will bring to the universe in and through Jesus our Lord. That's incredibly high calling that we have in our marriages. It's an amazing opportunity for us to show others how the gospel can be applied in our families. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's what the mystery means here. So before we get into the four layers of interpretation, I do want to ask a couple of questions here. Why does Paul do this? Why? I mean, if, if if his whole purpose is to get everyone to submit to one another in love, uh, why encourage wives to submit to husbands at all? We're going to see this develop even more next week with a piece on children and parents, uh, especially fathers and slaves and masters. Uh, But I think that the key to understanding this is that Paul's main interest is spreading the gospel. We have to remember that even though in our society we live in an almost post-Christian time where Christianity has spread so much that basically the whole world has heard about Christianity. There are still unreached people groups out there. I get that. Uh, there are people who never really heard the gospel on a serious level. I get that. But, but the gospel has permeated our society, especially in the Western world, to the point where many people have thought they've heard the gospel and they've, they've turned away from it. But you have to remember, back then, that's not what the Christian movement was like. The Christian movement was incredibly tiny. There were only a small number of people groups who had heard the gospel, a small geographical area that had heard the gospel, and it was all contained in the Roman Empire, which the the numbers of people in the Roman Empire vastly outnumbered the people in the early Christian movement. And so there was no way for the early Christian movement to affect any large, direct cultural change. That was impossible, unfathomable. And so... How do you reach people in a culture that views households a very specific way, but also honor the gospel at the same time? Well, I think that's why he encourages wives to submit. Because if wives aren't submitting to their husbands, a Christian wife isn't submitting to a Christian husband, then that's going to look like anarchy to the outsider. And Paul wants to make sure the gospel can spread. So I'm suggesting here that God... That Paul is, is, by the Spirit of God, instructing husbands and wives in a way that is godly, that does not lead to anarchy, that catches people's attention in a positive way. This is how he's doing it, through this household code in Ephesians 5 and 6. So now we have to ask the question, what does this mean for our lives? We're going to think through the four layers of interpretation as we have been. Uh, We've looked a little bit at what the text meant to them. How would they have applied it? Well, in the original context of Ephesians, the original audience would have understood that the traditional notions of the household code were being radically questioned by Paul. I mean, the first word out of his mouth after he says we should submit to every, everyone should submit to everyone, that would have been controversial enough. Then the next, the next breath, he says wives. <laughs> he addresses the wives, which no one did in the household codes of those days. So that would have been a radical moment in the, I can't imagine what it would have been like, you know, being read the letter of Ephesians in, in the original time. And him saying, you know, someone reading that, and then the next one, wives to your husbands. Whoa, that would have been wild. Um, The elites in the society were being told that they were to serve others in love. And that's in line with Jesus' teachings on leadership. 
This is a major departure from the culture at that time. So what does the text mean to us? Uh, I am not going to punt on that this week. Uh, Do I think that Paul would still encourage wives to submit to husbands in 2023 America? Yes, I do. Do I think that Paul would still command husbands to love their wives in 2023 America? Yes, I do. But I also think that if Paul was writing a letter to the American church in 2023, he'd tell us to repent of the sermons and the messages that commanded women to submit to men, wives to submit to husbands that were being abusive, and on and on and on. This passage has been used in many, many ways that are not befitting the gospel, that were not the original intent, and certainly not God's heart for marriages, God's heart for the church throughout time. The section has been taken out of context so many times, so we must be careful in how we think about it and how we live it. Paul's vision is of a church characterized by servant leadership, by unity, by humility, by mutual submission. And all of these things are still 100% relevant today. And I want to, I want to close with three visual uh, graphics here because I think this will help us understand what's going on here. Um, this is what we, how we view, I think, uh, the hierarchy of the kingdom of God. This is how we view leadership. We view that there's a world, that there's a church, that there's ministers, that there's Jesus, and there's God. So God is at the top, and Jesus, Jesus is underneath his authority, and then he provides authority to ministers, and ministers go out and they, uh, they lead over their churches, and the churches go out and reach out to the world. But what I'm submitting to you is that this is not how the Bible views this, the way this works. If we go to the next slide. God views this as upside down. This is what I'm talking about. We were talking about the upside down kingdom. The greatest person is the greatest what? Servant. The servant. Jesus Christ taught that throughout his ministry, and especially at the end of his life, that if you want to be a leader, if you want to minister to people, then you've got to wash people's feet, which was the lowest task, the lowest slave. Now, I put God to the side because God is completely other. (laughs) God is completely beyond our ways of bucketing things. But Jesus is at the, the top of the pyramid serving everyone. He appoints ministers who serve the church. The church goes out in the community and they serve their neighbors in love. This is what it's about. This is what Ephesians 5.21 is telling us. It's describing for us this upside down kingdom. And what I'm submitting to you is that when Paul goes immediately to wives and husbands, when he goes next to fathers and, and children, when he goes next to slaves and masters, that he's doing the same thing in households. He's talking about the upside down household. You have Jesus. Jesus is the one serving the head of the household. He's the, the man is responsible. There is a responsibility for men in the home. There are a lot of decisions that come down to the head of household. These decisions have to be made in love and through service and through submission and through honoring the other people in the household. And then you have the rest of the people in the household, the wives, the children, and the slaves. And then the family becomes an example now to the rest of the world of the goodness of God and of the gospel message that unites everyone, that levels the playing field so there's no haves and haves nots that if you have Jesus, you're a have. If you don't have Jesus, then tragically you're a have not. But that all that, all that needs to change there is to hear and believe and repent and accept the gospel. Mm-hmm. So this is, I think, the point of what this passage is trying to do. It's not about lording over anyone. 
We should have known that from John 13. We should have known that from other gospel passages that talk about servant leadership. This is the image we can keep in our mind as we keep moving into, we're going to unpack this even more next week when we get into Ephesians 6 with the other two groups of people that Paul addresses. So let's keep reflecting on this this week. How can our marriages and our families showcase God's plan for unity in beautiful ways? How can we exhibit a taste of the kingdom for those around us? Those are the questions that we can leave ourselves with this week. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your son, for his example, for how he taught us to serve others in love. God, I, I just, I get overwhelmed at times thinking about um, your vision, how beautiful your vision is, and how we've sometimes failed to live up to that. Father, I ask that you would help us to uh, do better, that you'd help us all to see your truth clearly, to, um, to submit to one another uh, in love, to, um, to serve those in our families, to serve those in our communities in ways that showcase your beauty, your goodness, your mercy, your love. So, Father, we thank you for your help with doing that, for how you've enabled us through the Spirit to understand these things, to, um, to live these things, and to, uh, to exhibit these things to those around us. So We're so thankful for the way that you work with us and how you, uh, gracious you are to keep working with us even when we've messed this up. So I thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.